Welcome back to the Soak by Slush podcast, where we unpack the first principles of building generational technology companies by diving deep into timeless, hard-won lessons with some of the most iconic founders and investors out there. Joining me today is one such leader and venture capitalist, Quentin Clark. These days, Quentin spent his time looking for next-generation products at General Catalyst and sits on the boards of some exceptional companies like Coda, Comure, Hopin, Minio, Aviatrix, and so many more. However, it is really Quentin's earlier career that we'll spend the most of today's episode on. After graduating from University of Massachusetts Amherst, Quentin spent 20 years moving up the ranks at Microsoft. He then went on to become CTO at two legendary software companies in SAP and Dropbox. So when it comes to building engineering and product organizations, there really aren't many people more experienced than Quentin. Let's go to the episode. I wanted to start off with going back to the very start of your career. And, and at the start of your career, you spent 20 years with, with Microsoft. And I think you know, Microsoft is a relatively rare example of a company that has stayed on top for nearly half a century and through multiple technological cycles. So I want to start with, in your experience, what is it about Microsoft that has made it such an exceptionally enduring company? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's true that Microsoft really is and has been an enduring company. And I guess I kind of narrowed down to a couple of things that really strike me about my time there. One was the command over what I call control planes. If you think about the things that are the most important in Microsoft's success, Windows as a franchise, Office as a franchise, the enterprise platform, Xbox, and, and now Azure, all these things are platforms upon which many, many things are built, right? So they're not just a single end-to-end -end solution. And I think that that notion of control planes and making investment where it's not just about the revenue that you can earn as a company, but it's about the revenue that the ecosystem can earn on that platform. That's what really creates these amazing flywheels. And it also explains where Microsoft has struggled a little bit, right? iPhone became a control plane in the sort of mobile era, and it lost that. AWS got an early start on a new cloud compute control plane, and Azure has been busily catching up, and now it's part of that effort, but we were on our heels for a little while there. And then it's just this investment in people. It really embraced failure as learning and keeping people there and helping them grow and allows Microsoft to take on big things. You, you can look past the three quarters of projects and look at a multi-year strategy. The Xbox business is an example, the entire enterprise business is an example, you know, starting Azure and getting to where it is today. These are like decade long journeys. It was not something that was like, just get a product out there and try to get some traction in a quarter. And if that doesn't happen, you're fired, right? It really made this like big investment in people to take on these big, you know, important initiatives. And one thing I want to jump on, which is one of the, the most classic examples of why companies fail to become enduring companies is the innovator's dilemma, you know, everything that makes you so good at understanding how to make incremental changes and optimize your product appears to be a really bad heuristic for actually adapting to kind of tectonic shifts. And so competitors can come in and sweep the market from you. So, so what does Microsoft do right to to avoid that? I think giving people the permission to go and put the current business at risk. I'll tell you a great story. Um, when Satya Nadala first took over the enterprise division, this is the era before he became CEO. Most of our focus is all on-premise, on-premise software, two to three year cycles. You know, we were really good at that, honestly. And when he came in, we had this meeting with him about how we go about building online services and, and how much we should invest in it. And we'd had this dilemma that we've been struggling through for 
for a while, which is we either need to risk our long range plan because we have this like kind of three, five year model for how the on-prem business was going to grow. This is a multi-billion dollar growing deep double digit percentages a year. This is like a serious affair, right? Or we could open up more headcount and hire a new team to go do the new cloudy stuff, go do the new Azure stuff. And we're like six minutes in this meeting and he looks at us and he says, but you don't believe in your long range plan. And we're like, well, well what do you mean? Like, here it is, it's written down. He's like, but if you believe the cloud's gonna be this important, you're already telling me you don't really believe in your long range plan. And we're all kind of sitting there a little bit stunned in silence, right? Kind of recognizing he was right. And so give us that permission to really sort of embrace the change. It, it is kind of what Microsoft did well when it did its best work in navigating those changes. Extremely fascinating. And then I wanted to take things up uh, a couple of levels of abstraction and talk about being a CEO. I mean, you've obviously worked with a lot of great CEOs across Microsoft, SAP, Dropbox, and now your portfolio at General Catalyst. So in general, what have you found to be non-negotiable characteristics of a good CEO? I think there's two things that most highly impactful, successful people tend to share in common. And, you know, being a CEO is no exception. One of them is will and one of them is curiosity. Will is an old word for for grit and curiosity is an old word for growth mindset. I mean, humanity has <laughs> been around a while. We've encountered these characteristics in the past, right? And I think that that notion of will, things are hard. You know, you're going to encounter challenges you've just never seen before. And if you don't have the kind of mindset that compels you to drive through and figure out a way through those obstacles, it's going to be a challenge. And curiosity, many, many times mistakes are made, whether it's, you know, in a business strategy or execution or engineering, whatever it is, just fundamentally because people didn't understand something. And that lack of understanding typically comes because people didn't pull on a thread to curiously understand things all the way down to the bottom. And that that sort of mindset of challenging your own thinking and challenging why you believe things and that mindset's insanely important. For CEOs and, and leaders in general, I think there's another characteristic which often shows up as being very important, which is clarity. Clarity of vision, clarity of purpose, clarity of empowerment to the team, clarity of your goals. Often it does fall on these leaders to be the mush separators because organizations are complex entities and you know the leaders have to really be the ones that are kind of creating that clarity day to day. And if that is kind of what is general to every good leader, I want to hear about that which has been specific to a single great leader that you met. So like when have you been most surprised by a specific recurring trait, habit or characteristic of an individual CEO? Hasso Plotner was not CEO at SAP when I was there, but he was chairman. And the thing that struck me about him is this is a man with an incredible career, built incredible worldwide, loved company and brand, huge impact on the enterprise space. And, you know, he was definitely in his seventies at that point. And his curiosity was unbelievable. I've just never seen anything quite like it. And as I worked with him and, and sort of saw that in action, I kind of recognized that in Gates and other people I'd worked with, that that curiosity ends up being a lifelong trait, not just something you pick up and use as a tool as a leader. And then let's talk about a, a very specific kind of leader, the CTO. And you obviously spend time as the CTO of both SAP and Dropbox, two great organizations. And I actually wanted to start with uh, a very broad question, which is what separates a truly exceptional CTO from like a good CTO? So exceptional CTOs, insofar as I, I can really even fairly answer that question, a lot of this has to be about cultural fit. 
you know, the values, what's important to people, how they work. Some organizations are very collaborative. Others just want people to take the helm, et cetera. And the reason I mention this is exceptional CTOs need to be part of the culture and stewards of the culture. So it's not just a simple one size fits all role. The other thing that's important about good CTOs has to do with their remit. So are they engineering bearing or are they all of engineering product design? So good engineering leaders, for example, two things are paramount. People, obviously a lot of that's recruiting and, and, and about empowerment of the right people and creating that clarity and all these kinds of things. And the other is about having the technology never be a reason why the business can't do the things that business wants to do. The product organization, engineering as a whole, is able to always be responsive week to week, month to month, year to year, and hasn't painted itself in a corner or create such a burden of tech debt that it can't maneuver or can't add features or whatever. And, you know, I've seen this movie play out over and over and over again, where it's been done really well. And, and that product is able to stay agile with the evolving needs of the business and where products have frankly struggled, you know, where entire years have gone by without adding anything to a roadmap, um, because the engineering found itself in a situation where they had to retool and rebuild because they didn't build the kind of agility and correctness in along the way. If the remit is a little bit broader and has, you know, product and design, the important thing about product adding into that really is marrying strategy to the roadmap, right? It's a stewardship of the company strategy and translating that down into the roadmap and kind of working across company to do that. So I do have to jump on one of the points you made. So if you said that in a more kind of engineering focused CTO role, one of the things that is critical is never letting technology be the impediment to, to where your company can go. Often, especially in early stage businesses, there's this talk about sales and engineering being at odds with each other. Salespeople selling things you don't have and guiding the, the product roadmap a bit too much, where the engineering team would want to be building their kind of existing long-term vision. So should you set some boundaries around that where you do not let the, uh, the external organization, especially not the the sales organization completely dictate the, the direction of your of your roadmap. Yeah. So the balance between what you take in as input from the day-to-day -day engagement with customers versus a roadmap you're setting that's a little bit more strategic. Getting that balance is tricky. And it's and it's often one of the most difficult things to, to get right, honestly. Because you can find yourself in one extreme following everything that a customer wants you to do but then yet not having a business that's really growing or being outflanked by some other sea change that's happening in the industry you're playing in. And on the other extreme, you can build something that on paper is perfect and meets every criteria. You sit down, you do, you do user studies, you do market studies, and you're like, this product, like this should be perfect and yet never quite gets the traction, right? And I think part of it ends up being how you define the cadences of the business. So how often do you get engineering product and sales talking to each other? And how do you help everyone separate the, hey, we need to do some of these small things to keep customers fed and you know remove the rough edges and to get table stakes done and all this stuff versus the stuff that we're doing to ensure that we have a business still two, three years from now. At the end of the day, engineering and sales aren't at odds with each other. They both want an incredible company outcome and impact on its customers. It's just a question of how do you titrate between the here and the now and the, and the demands that are out there with the boots on the ground versus making sure that strategically the company has a place as the world continues to evolve and grow. Extremely interesting. And then let's talk specifically about Dropbox, where you spent two years as CTO. And if I have my, my history straight, Dropbox replaced one of its co-founders, um, Arash Ferdosi, about a year before you joined as CTO. Aditya Agarwal was CTO for one year, and then a year later you took over. So 
in companies that have technical co-founders that go on to lead engineering and product in the early stages, what are the signs that they are no longer the right fit and you should go out and hire an experienced product or engineering leader? It's a great question. And, you know, certainly as I was interviewed and then brought into Dropbox, you kind of get a lay of the land and you sort of begin to understand where you need to make investments as that new leader helping the company mature. And it's about scaling, right? Scaling takes building systems. And as terrible as it may sound, the job of larger scale leaders, a lot of it is this day-to-day management of a system, if you will, a piece of machinery that's at work. Because as you scale, one-offs will kill you. Inconsistencies, are the small tears in an organizational's fabric that grow into rips. Whether that's architecture, you end up getting boxed in. Whether it's compensation, you end up with bad behaviors and inequalities. Whether if it's organization, you end up with disempowerment or misalignment between responsibility and accountability. So the, that scaling is all about systematically going through and eliminating those one-offs by having the systems in place that allow you to kind of like grow and repeat and do things in a consistent manner in a way that's like visible to people and understandable and, and somewhat predictable. Super interesting. And, and since you mentioned that Dropbox had exceptional engineering talent, I did want to ask what you learned about kind of finding, interviewing and, and, and evaluating great technical talent. I come back to the stuff we talked about earlier. Exceptional people tend to have will and curiosity. That tends to be true in technical talent as well. I will also come back to cultural fit. Cultural fit is still insanely important because you're part of a system that's kind of working and operating and it has norms and to sort of fit into that and be able to navigate that very easily is obviously important, but it's also, it's important for maintaining that culture that people do fit into that culture. Really good technical talent also has high EQ and, and IQ so they can solve hard problems and they're aware of how to work with people around them. There's two other pieces of this I would talk about. One is technical talent falls typically into either specialists or generalists. So if you sort of plot out depth of understanding or experience, you know, as a y-axis and then sort of topics or domain areas as an x-axis, the very best people have big areas under the curve, whether it's concentrated in a couple of areas or whether it's spread out, but there's a lot of area under the curve. And then the last piece of this is there's a certain X factor of, of exceptional technical talent where the most next level engineers that I know, quote, just can't help themselves. They have a sense of correctness. They point out to others. They can't accept answers they don't fully understand themselves. There's just a certain nature of like constantly pulling at the truth and like uncovering things that the very best technical people I've ever worked with all have in common. Really interesting. And actually off schedule, I was inspired to ask you one question about technical co-founders, which is, help me out here. I want to found a company in the next two years and I'm not technical, so I'm going to need a technical co-founder. And I would ideally want to find someone who can not only, you know, really rapidly get me to the, the first version of my, my product, but also someone who shares the kind of the vision and the more kind of general sort of softer traits that you'd expect of a co-founder. And then also someone who can build the foundation and, and, and probably grow into the kind of the CTO or CPO of the organization. So how can I find a person like that? If, if I had an easy answer to that, uh, I'd be the most popular venture capitalist out there. <laughs> I say a lot of this has to do with fit with that person. Like you said, there's a lot of sort of like soft skills and this is someone you're practically married to, right? So it's someone you're going to want to be very comfortable spending a lot of time with and, and feel like you can have a very open, deep conversation with them kind of at all times. I think the other characteristics you're looking for here is that area under the curve. And what I mean by that is what are the hardest technical problems that this company is likely to face? And are you bringing someone aboard that either has the experience or shows a propensity 
propensity to be able to get through those hard technical questions pretty easily. And so you're looking for someone that has a, a sense of urgency balanced with correctness. And what I mean by that is, hey, we need to find an answer to this so that we can kind of move forward and experiment and learn from it while not getting ourselves so deep into a particular solution that we can't maneuver. And so that balance is really important in a technical co-founder, particularly. So you kind of are looking for the people that have stuck with things long enough to see the results of it. People that have a set of experiences that show that they know how to learn from the implementations that they've created and learn from the systems that they've built and, and know how to deal with the consequences of what's right and wrong about it. Um, because that balance is going to end up being super important. Extremely helpful. And um, fading into principle around design of technical organizations. By that, I mean engineering, product, uh, user research, data science, uh, design, et cetera, et cetera. So um, like in general, how should founders think about how they kind of structure their technical organization? Yeah, Mika, the, the first place to start is recognize the org is just a tool. And the, and the best way to kind of start using that tool is to start with an ideal. What are my goals? What am I trying to optimize for? What are the things that have to come out right? How would I design the org chart to have the best chance at achieving those objectives? That's what I call the ideal org chart. Then you have to deal with people, obviously, right? And, and your notion of an ideal org chart versus what your team's interests and skill sets and their ideas are often are not 100% aligned. So you have to iterate on the org chart to meet what you have in reality. And that, and that ends up modifying the sort of that ideal org chart into something that's workable. And then you have to start thinking through, and this is the piece that people often don't do. You have to start building what I refer to as compensating functions. This specific org chart optimizes for some things and other things are actually challenged by the shape of this org chart. And so you got to go back and you got to think through, how do I build the systems and the work between people as a way to compensate for those things I still care about happening correctly, even if the org chart isn't naturally designed to make those outcomes uh, a priority. And then, and then the other piece of it is, um, a lot of times in my corporate career, and even, even with the startups I'm working with, I often hear, we're going to do this one reorg and then we're going to be done. N no, you're not going <laughs> to. Unfortunately, <laughs> that is not true. You are never going to be done. You have to plan for fluidity and you have to communicate that to the organization of, look, this is how we're going to operate over the next whatever it is you give it, six months, year, 18 months. And we will continue to evolve just like the companies evolve, just like you need to learn to evolve. The organization as a system also needs to evolve. And so build that mindset in. It gives people better agency to challenge the norms of an organization. And it also helps you identify where you may have gotten accountability and responsibility misaligned. You really give you give room for any of these misalignments that kind of come out in light and, and get worked on. And in the spirit of kind of continuous iteration and learning and to actually finish up on this topic, let's imagine you're a, a co-founder and CTO of a company that currently employs five people. As that CTO, what are the surprising things to look out for as your company scales orders of magnitude? Like what really changes between five and 50 and what really changes between 50 and, and, and 500? A lot of this isn't specific to EPD, right? To a technical part of an organization. The, the number one thing that always evolves is people. Who, what their remits are, what the agency they've been given is. Like that is the number one thing that has to evolve as you scale. 
you know, five people. I mean, what a joy. You're in a foxhole together. You are working every day. You're fairly intimate with all these people. You know them very well. You're able to know what's going on with all of them and what we're working on and understand progress, et cetera. At 50, you no longer have the mental capacity to do that. It just isn't feasible. So at 50, you need to be part of a five and you need to start scaling yourself. And what I mean by that is a 50 person organization, you know, your direct reports may be like six, seven, they're going to have like six, seven people. Suddenly, like you've captured 50 people, right? Because everyone's part of two different systems. They're, they're part of one group and they're leading another group. And so they're part of these two very intimate groups of people. And that's how you can start scaling yourself. And you, and you spend a little bit more time on, on principles and guardrails and this stuff, as opposed to really being involved in day-to-day -day direction. At 500, you have to be part of a five, but you also have to be part of a 50. You have to kind of be part of something deeper your organization kind of as, as time goes by. And that's actually how you start scaling the organization. And then at 500, there's a whole set of other machinery things that start to come into play, you know, terms like span of control and org depth and missions and autonomy and all this stuff. And, and there too, we're back to this clarity piece, clarity on, on empowerment. Like for example, in an EPD organization of 500 people, if you're not clear on what PM does and doesn't do relative to engineering and design, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Like, don't be, don't be apologetic about it. If you, if your operating model is PM's going to decide what we do and engineering's going to decide how we do it, then just say that. Don't be apologetic about it. It's okay, right? Balancing collaboration versus ending up in a swirl and everything's kind of by committee. This is, this is where people get into trouble as they scale, where everything used to be really easy because it was just all these people around the table and everyone could voice opinions and it was kind of clear how things got done as you scale the how things get done is no longer as clear and so it has to be it has to be communicated it has to be made clear and let's finish up on a couple of general questions on perhaps eternal lessons around kind of building iconic companies and maybe this is the moment when you get to talk about some of what you currently do as a venture capitalist and i did want to start with um obviously as a vc you're kind of expert at de-risking potential causes of company failure so what are the three most common root causes behind failure of a company the three most common root causes behind company failure people 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 <laughs> like one, two, three, I mean, is, is the truth, right? Whether it's, we had the wrong person, the wrong job, we didn't give them the right agency. We didn't give them the right guideline. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons for that, but it, it typically is, is people digging beneath that a little bit, not learning or false learning is one major cause. Like we didn't create the right experimentation philosophy. So we weren't really learning from this product being the market. Uh, or we believed we learned one thing, but really we didn't dig deep enough and really understand what we're supposed to take away from this. Um, getting the market wrong, who's the buyer, is the timing right? Is there a groundswell out there that could eat you up? And then I would say the third is not focusing. Like I, like I said before, building a company takes will. And sometimes that will is just staying focused through one thing to understand everything you're supposed to learn from that and to see it through. Because often a mistake that's made is you try some things, it doesn't work, and you start shifting around very quickly looking for other answers when you haven't really fully learned the first thing you're supposed to learn, you know, on the first thing you're trying. Mm -hmm. And if we, in some sense at least, consider the inverse of that, what are things that you find the um, early stage companies that, you know, you consider backing or you back, like what do you find them spending way too much time on? What do they think really, really matters in the early stages, but really doesn't matter? 
at the early stages, the, the stuff that matters mostly is experimentation velocity. You know, you're, you're typically backing incredibly talented people and, and you just need to help them get out there and learn and, and go and explore the problem space. And so a lot of times a failure mode can be really thinking that anyone cares about the exact approach, especially like a seed stage founder, inevitably in their slide deck, you know, here's a problem in the world. Here's a market space for it. Here's how we're going to get after it. Here's our beachhead. Here's our approach. That approach is unlikely to be the final answer, right? And getting kind of getting stuck on that approach or spending too much time on that is often a problem that, that surfaces in the early days. Absolutely. And in looking for those potential failure modes, what are some of the most insightful questions you ask when being pitched by founders? Honestly, I think a, I think a good question that's too often unasked uh, of founders is why are you doing this? You can learn a lot by just simply asking people, why are you doing what you're doing? And you'd be surprised how often founders tell you that, that no one's asked them that question before. The other question I, I tend to learn a lot from is what has been harder or easier than you expected it to be? So especially as we're looking at, you know, company, they're going from a C to an A, it's like, what was harder or easier? Or, you know, companies is just launching a public release of something or a beta of something. What was harder about that than you thought it would be? Or what was easier? And you learn a lot about the founders in those dialogues in terms of like what is easy and hard to them. And you also learn something about their learning mindset and, and, and how they go about extracting lessons out of the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And really quickly, I'm going to squeeze in one last question, which is what is one really important truth about building companies that most people would disagree with you on? I'm glad you asked this question. I think it's important to consider the impact. What is the impact? Uh, thinking through how to impact stakeholders, your, your employees, your partners, your customers over the long term to build intentionally with the best understanding of how to positively impact the world around you. I mean, it's possible to a company that does well for its founders, investors, shareholders, but not for society. It's possible to start a company with the best of intents, but then to have the growth blinders on and not see the twisting and kind of the unintended and unexpected impact. I think a truth is that founders, investors, and other stakeholders need to hold each other accountable. We only have this one rock to live on, so we should be considering impact. And it's, it's a little bit what's behind General Catalyst's point of view on responsible innovation. And it's one of the reasons that I came to this firm. You know, innovating responsibly means building companies from the outset for both growth and good and aligning to the long-term interests of your stakeholders. And I think it's a new standard that we're going to see over the coming couple of decades, a, a shift from just the shareholder to a broader set of stakeholders. And, and by the way, it's hard, right? I mean, you know, growth gets interesting. It's easy to get wrapped up in it, but we have a mission to do. And, you know, a path in this is just to come back to basics, right? Get back to that will and that curiosity and that clarity to ensure that we are thinking about the impact of what we're building. I completely agree. Maybe Milton Friedman belongs in the, in the wastebasket of history. Anyway, Quentin, thank you so much for doing this. I learned so much from this. Really insightful on all questions. Miko, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.